namo myoho renge kyo namo myoho renge kyo namo myoho renge kyo hi friends i hope you're well this morning and safe we start a new chapter chapter 4 in this tri- in this translation it's called belief and understanding um, what's it called in other i should have looked at this before it's also known as well anyway doesn't matter this now now that shariputra has been instructed on how to be a bodhisattva a, a true bodhisattva a mahasattva bodhisattva these older uh, monks who've been practicing, working toward arhat, right, as sarvakas, seniors in the, as far as the disciples go, they've, uh, they've been watching and listening and practicing according to what they've been taught before the Lotus Sutra, and always this carrot of future enlightenment was just, they just took it for granted, not granted, but took it as this is our lives. Our lives are to seek out detachment from Mara and Samsara, hmm? be uh, nonplussed, be calm, equanimous, and uh, not divorce ourselves of greed, anger, stupidity, because if we get rid of craving and clinging, what is there to be dramatic about, right? And just live this life as keen observers and uh, wait till someday in some incarnation uh, we will have lived this way long enough that full enlightenment will occur. But our enlightenment right now is nirvana. It's all about just detachment. Hmm? And that's the way we we live and learn every day of the things that sneak in and spark craving or that we have a hard time letting go of. Right? This is a story of ancient Buddhism. Yeah. But now what they're hearing is holy crap, we don't have to wait. We could have this right now. I never even considered that, right? Shariputra just got given the promise of Anuttara Samyak Samodai, perfect and complete enlightenment via his practice of bodhisattva, not isolation. Right? So they're going to speak out now. Because what they've witnessed with Shariputra is mind-bendingly clear. That all this time they're spending waiting for something that they can actually experience it if only they would propagate as bodhisattvas, not as arahants, right? Or shravakas, or pratyagabuddhas, or those lesser vehicles. Hmm? So here we go. At that time, the wise and long-lived Subhuti, Mahakatayayana, and Mahamaudagayana, in view of the unprecedented dharma they had heard from the Buddha in which the world-honored one had conferred upon Sariputra, 
a prophecy of Anuttara Samyak Sambodai, displayed the thought that this was something rare and danced for joy. <gasps> then they rose from their seats, adjusted their garments, bared their right shoulder, knelt on the ground on their right knee, single-mindedly joined their hands. You see the... the you see the symbolism of the joined hands? And this is why I said a long time ago, and I'll say it again because I haven't said it in a while. This isn't the position. It's referred to sometimes, but what's more often, especially if you read older translations, is that the palms, you notice when you do this, your palms, it's really hard to keep your palms together. But if you turn your hands this way, your palms are really solidly into each other. And then what you'll hear is folded hands. Now you're joined. And what does that kind of look like? Doesn't it look like a brain? Doesn't it look like a single-minded hmm, expression of expectation, of work, of action, dedication? This is the position, my friends. Modern scholarship avoids it, but you can find it. So when they say single-mindedly joined palms, inclined their bodies in veneration, then looked up at the august countenance and addressed the Buddha saying, quote, we who were at the head of the Sangha, all of us advanced in years, and who told ourselves that we had already attained nirvana and could be charged with nothing further, we've gotten there, right? That's our hot thinking. Had no effort, made no effort, to seek Anuttara Samyak Bodhai, because Anuttara Samyak Bodhai is something that will come in some distant future, in some other land. Read the Vimalakirti. The land you're in is the Buddha land. But even though that was taught before, still the thinking is perfect and complete enlightenment, that's a far distant thing. All we can do in this human form is this much. Attain nirvana, which isn't really full nirvana, is it? But that's okay. What we want to do is use this nirvana of remainder to its utmost, which is the bodhisattva practice. So here we go. They're just realizing this on their own. Wonderful. So they go on. The time is now long since the world-honored one of old began preaching the Dharma all this time, we, sitting in our seats, our bodies tired, were mindful merely of emptiness, singleness, and deedlessness, right? Suchnesses. And in bodhisattva dharmas, sport, supernatural penetrations, the cleansing of Buddha realms, and the perfection of the beings, our hearts took no pleasure. This is just the drudgery of our practice, learning people's natures, learning how to speak to them, learning who to avoid, learning blah, 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 blah. What is the reason for this? 
The world-honored one had caused us to leave the three spheres and made us able to bear direct witness to nirvana. Right? He taught us how to control our minds, our appetite, our appetite for food, sex, gratification, ambition, pride. Right? What they're now learning is that wasn't the goal. That was a way of understanding those devices of samsara. Not to annihilate them, but to annihilate their hold on us, which we manufacture. Right? I said it before. Things don't own us, but we let them, we make them own us because somehow we identify our ego with that ownership. It's really perverse when you take it apart, but it's also amazingly freeing when you take it apart. Oh, I'm doing that? But, 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 mm-hmm. So that's what they're talking about. Our practice has led us to witnessing our own cravings and being kind of repulsed by them because of the, the power we've given things, right? That's a tough thing to, to come to, period, right? Furthermore, we're now well advanced in years. What did I say about older people? And when the Buddha instructed bodhisattvas in Anuttara Sambodai, this did not arouse in us the least thought of desire. Yeah, we all know eventually we'll get there. <laughs> what? Now, however, since the Buddha's own presence, in the Buddha's own presence, we've heard a prophecy of Anuttara Sambodai. What? This is available to us now? What, what, what? Conferred on the voice hearers, our hearts are very glad. Having gained something that they had uh, that had not, they had not had before, for we did not think that now suddenly we should be able to hear a rare dharma. We thought we knew it all. Profoundly we rejoice, having received this great good advantage, an incalculable precious treasure, unsought by us. We didn't even know to look for it. Of itself has come into our possession. Well, because you were prepared for it. World-honored one, they go on. We now wish to speak a parable with which to clarify this meaning. So they want Buddha to understand. Of course he does, but for you and I to understand, they're now going to speak a parable to explain how for so many years they've been so ignorant about this ultimate goal and then suddenly it comes upon them without their even looking for it. So the par this should be an interesting parable. So let's go. Suppose there's a man who was young in years and who also, forsaking his father and running off, dwelt long in another country whether 10 or 20 or as much as 50 years. So a son has a disagreement with his father or a daughter with her mother. 
and they take off, never to speak them again, up to 50 years, right? Not only did he grow old, but he was also reduced to destitution, running about in all four directions in quest of food and clothing. Not an unusual occurrence in India, by the way, to this day. At length, in his wanderings, he accidentally headed toward his native land. Forgotten where he lived, right? His father, who had preceded him and who had sought his son without finding him, had stopped midway in a certain city. The father's house was great and rich, with treasure and jewels immeasurable, gold, silver, viruria, and coral, uh, coral sorry, amber and shvatika, and other jewels. His treasure houses were all filled to overflowing. He had many servants, assistants, vassals, elephants and horses, carriages and chariots, oxen and sheep without number. The profits that flowed in and out would fill the whole realm, and also merchants and itinerant traders were very numerous. So, very important and successful man, his father, but he'd lost contact with him for decades, right? At that time, the poor son, having visited various settlements and passed through kingdoms and metropolises, at length reached the city where his father was staying, but he didn't know that. He just ended up there looking for food and handouts. The father and mother were thinking of their son, for it had already been more than 50 years since they had parted with him. Yet, without ever mentioning such matters to others, they merely thought to themselves their hearts harboring regret and resentment. Old and decrepit, we have much gold and silver and many precious gems with which our treasure houses are filled to overflowing, but we have no sun. One day we shall die, and our riches will, shall be scattered, for we have no one to whom to bequeath them. For this reason, we are earnestly and constantly recalling our son. Again, they thought, if we should get a son to whom to bequeath our riches, we should be calmly happy and have no further cares. We all have accomplished our, our parental mission on this earth, yeah? World-honored one at that time, the poor son, hiring himself out as a laborer in his wanderings, by chance reached his father's house, where, stopping by the side of the gate, he saw in the distance his father seated on a lion throne, his feet resting on jeweled footstools, Brahmas, Ksitriyas, the governing or military class, and Householders all deferentially surrounding him, his body adorned with pearl necklaces valued in the thousands of myriads, attending on his left and right by vassals and servants, holding white feather dusters in their hands, covered by a jeweled canopy from which flowed banners were hanging down, flowered banners, sorry, were hanging down, the ground round about him sprinkled with scented water and strewn with many outstanding flowers, the rows of precious objects that were given and received upon entering and leaving, having in short various adornments of this sort, whereby he appeared most majestic and distinguished. As soon as the poor son had seen his father with his great power, straightway harboring great fear, he regretted having come to that place and privately thought, this is either a king or the equal of a king, but at any rate, this is no place for me to hire out my labor and earn anything. He didn't recognize his father. 
he saw him as some great powerful man and obviously well above his poor destitute status and that he, he couldn't find work here right The best thing for me to do, he thinks, is to go to a poor village where there will be room for me to use my strength to the fullest and where food and clothing will be easier to obtain. If I stay long in this place, I may be coerced to work, become a slave, yeah, and incarcerated. When he had had this thought, he quickly ran off. At that time, the great and wealthy man from his lion throne, seeing his son, instantly recognized him. Oh, no. And greatly pleased at heart, straightway thought, My treasures and treasure houses now have someone to whom they can be bequeathed. I constantly thought of this son, but had no way of seeing him. Then, quite suddenly, he came out of this his own accord, fulfilling my hopes. Though I was decrepit and aged, still I was eager for an heir and reluctant to die without one. But where is he going? Accordingly, he dispatched an attendant to follow the young man and bring him back. The messenger, running quickly, went and overtook him. The poor son was alarmed and cried out resentfully, I've committed no offense. Why have I been seized? He was scared. The messenger, grasping him all the more firmly, forced him to return with him. At that time, the poor son thought to himself, I am guiltless, and yet I've been seized. This surely means that I must die. He was given up. All the more terrified and helpless with agony, he fell to the earth. Seeing this from afar, the father said to the messenger, I do not want this man. Do not force him to come with you. Then sprinkling him with cool water, he brought him to, he brought him to but spoke to him no more. What is the reason? The father knew that his son's ambitions were mean, and he knew that he himself, being rich and powerful, would be a source of trouble to his son. Oh, I don't know. Could you do that? That's some compassion right there. But what is this parable telling us? Right? Because what these monks are describing is the journey of their own practice. How they've had such difficulties being able to see the great mission of their practice right in front of them but not recognizing it right the wealthy man that's shakyamuni the poor son are these mendicants these monks who've been following these lesser vehicles thinking that that was the only way they could live you see let's go on he knew perfectly well that this was his son but for reasons of expediency, ah, expedient means, for reasons of expediency, he wouldn't tell the others, this is my son. He wouldn't say that to them. That could cause all kinds of stuff, right? The messenger said to the son, I am now letting you go wherever you wish. The poor son oh, rejoiced, having gained something he had never had before. <laughs> Sound familiar? Freedom, ah, I can go about my poverty. <laughs> Rising from the ground, he went to a poor village there to seek food and clothing. At that time, the great man, wishing to entice his son, devised an expedient. 
he secretly dispatched two men whose appearance was miserable and who had no dignity of bearing, saying to them, You may go to that place and say gently to that poor fellow, There is a workplace here to which we will accompany you. If the poor fellow agrees, bring him along and put him to work. If he asks what you wish him to do, then you may say to him, You are being hired to sweep away dung. We too shall also work with you. At that time, the two messengers sought out the poor son directly, because they were promised jobs as well, albeit sweeping done. But see, this is a job that the son would think, yep, that's what I'm qualified for, right? And pay them well. Oh, wow, this is the best of these jobs I've ever had. Pretty clever. When they had found him, they told him in the above detail, the poor son first took his pay, then swept the dunk with them. The father, seeing his son, was struck by both pity and amazement. Then, on another day, through a window, he saw the figure of his son, weak and emaciated, wasted away, grim, grimy and soiled with dung, dirt, and dust. Straight away, he removed his necklaces, his fine outer garments, and his ornaments, and he put on instead a rough, torn, dirty, tar-stained garment and smearing dust over his own body, took in his right hand a dung shovel. Wow, man. Now, frightful in appearance, he addressed his workmen. You men, work. You may not slacken. By this means, contriving to approach his son. Then he addressed him, saying, Ah, uh, my man, work here always and do not go anywhere else. I will increase your wages. Whatever you need, whether pots or vessels or rice or noodles, salt or vinegar, or that sort of thing, do not trouble yourself about it, for I have other servants, aged and decrepit, whose needs I supply, and who can well afford to put their minds at ease. I am like your father. Ooh. Have no more cares. I'll take care of you. What is the reason? Hey, I'm old. My years are great, while yours are young and vigorous. Whenever you work, you are never guilty of lying or cheating, of anger or resentment, or of hateful words. I have never seen you guilty of these evils, as are the other workmen. From now on, you shall be like my own son. I'm taking you under my wing. Wow, cool, awesome, right? <laughs> what a guys. This must be how these great monks felt with Shakyamuni embracing them in their present state. Straight away the great man gave him a new name and called him his son, the poor son, though delighted by this treatment, continued as before to call himself a lowly workman from elsewhere. For this reason, for 20 years, remember time scales in, in Buddhism, yeah? For 20 years he was kept constantly at work clearing away dung. At the end of this time, he had complete confidence in himself and came and went without anxiety. He he, uh, yet he was lodged in the same place as before. 
living in the servant quarters. But, you know, he came in and out of the kitchen, got whatever he wanted. You know, he started to feel comfortable with his privilege. World-honored one at that time, the great man was taken ill and knew himself that he was to die before long. Well, I should say so. How old is he? He addressed his poor son, saying, I now have much gold and silver and many precious jewels with which my treasure houses are filled to overflowing. You are to find out whether there is much or little in those houses, what is to be taken in and what is to be given out. Such are my thoughts, and you are to understand my meaning. What is the reason? It is that you and I are now to be no different. You are to exercise care and to let nothing get lost. He's transferring his business to this son, to a son who doesn't know he's actually the son because he's created this long-term relationship of trust and reward. Hmm? At that time, the poor son, straight away receiving his instructions, took charge of the multitude of things, right? I owe this guy. I'm going to do what he asked me to do. He's an honorable son, after all. Not thinking that that's actually his father, but really a brilliant, expedient means, yes? He took charge of the multitude of things, the gold, the silver, the precious jewels, and the several treasure houses. Yet he had no craving for so much as a single meal, but continued to live as before in the same place, still unable to put off his lowly thoughts, he didn't crave the jewels and the wealth and all that. He still had his humble thinking. This was just business he was taking care of for the old man. Responsibly, honestly, yeah. Then when some time had passed, the father knew that his son had at length become more at ease, that having achieved a great ambition, he was ashamed of his former state of mind. When facing his end, the old man commanded his son to gather his king, kinsmen, as well as kings, great ministers, chet, uh, that word, chetriyas, and householders, who were all to gather together. Then he himself proclaimed to them, Sirs, know that this is my son, begotten by me having forsaken me in such and such a city and run off. He suffered loneliness and hardship for more than 50 years. His original name was so-and-so. My own name is thus-and-so. Formerly in my native city, affected by grief, I sought him. Some time ago, I suddenly encountered him by accident and got him back. He is really my son. I am really his father. Now all the treasure that I have belongs to my son. What was formerly paid out and taken in, my son knows it all. World honored one at this time, the poor son, hearing his father's words straight away, rejoiced greatly, having gained something he had never had before. Then he thought, formerly I had no thought of seeking or expecting anything. And now these treasure houses have come to me of themselves. Through no effort of my own, although he doesn't understand his effort, was his humility, his non-craving and clinging. 
world-honored one, the great rich man, is the thus-come-one. Yeah, we saw that coming. We are like the Buddha's sons. The thus-come-one constantly tells us that we are his sons. World-honored one, by reason of the three kinds of woe, in the midst of birth and death, we suffer various annoyances, erring and ignorant. We cling in desire to lesser dharmas. <laughs> this day, the world-honored one commands us to take thought and to clear away the dung of frivolous assertions concerning the dharmas. In the course of this, we striving all the more earnestly contrive to arrive at nirvana. Having earned one day's wages, we rejoice greatly at heart, imagining this to be enough. Then we say to ourselves that the Buddha Dharma, thanks to our increased efforts, what we have gained is broad and plentiful, yet the world-honored one, knowing beforehand that our thoughts are addicted to base cravings and that we desire lesser karma, uh, dharmas, makes a show of permissiveness and does not specify to us you are all to have a portion in the treasure house of the thus-come-one's knowledge and insight. The world-honored one, by resort to the power of expedient devices, preaches the wisdom of the thus-come-one. We, having earned from the Buddha one day's wages in nirvana, imagine that we have gained a great thing and have no ambitions with regard to this great vehicle. Also, since the thus-come-one's wisdom is set forth before the bodhisattvas, we ourselves had no expectation regarding it. What is the reason? Well, the Buddha, knowing that our thoughts we, in our thoughts we crave the lesser dharmas, by resort to the power of expedient devices, preached in a manner appropriate to us. Oh, you want to be Arhats? Well, here. Oh, you want to be Shravakas? Here. You want to be Parateka Buddhas? Here. And we did not know that we are truly the Buddha's children. Now, at last, we know. With regard to Buddha knowledge, the world-honored one is unstinting. What is the reason? From of old we have been the Buddha's children, yet we have craved only lesser dharmas. If we had had a craving for the greater, then the Buddha would have preached for us the dharma of the greater vehicle. In this sermon, he preaches only the one vehicle. Also, in former times, in the presence of bodhisattvas, he maligned the voice hearers who craved the lesser dharmas, right? We've talked about that. You guys will never reach Buddhahood, right? Shravakas, Prachakabuddhas, Arhats. You'll reach some form of nirvana, but never perfect and complete Buddhahood because you're stubborn. You only seek this one thing, but it, you know, Yet the Buddha teaches and converts by recourse to the greater vehicle. This is why we say that whereas formerly we had no thought of seeking or expecting anything, now the great jewel of the Dharma king has come to us of its own accord. What the Buddha's children should gain that we have already gained. At that time, Mahakashyapa, wishing to restate this meaning, proclaimed Gathas, saying, This day... We, having heard the Buddha's spoken teaching, dance for joy. And I think on that note, we will save these gathas for the next video, okay? Interesting story, yeah? Um, I have to say, I remember when I first read this, I wasn't sure what to think of it. 
But I hope my uh, little interjections helped to make that more understandable. We're still talking about expedient means, though, after all. But we're only in Chapter 4. So hang in there. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Take care of your health, as I always say. Links in the description. You right? Like and subscribe. It, it helps the algorithms. It only takes a few seconds. doesn't cost you anything. But if you can support this effort, tremendous gratitude from all of us. Whether it's uh, buying an ebook, getting a mandala, um, or using Patreon, Patreon, become a patron, a dollar a month, ten dollars a month, whatever you can do, um, or right through PayPal. What, what is that? The, the address is at the website threefoldlotus.com. Um, is it paypal.me. Or slash Sifu Sylvain. I don't remember. You can you can see on threefoldlotus.com. Um, however, you can support this effort so I can keep creating books and expanding this resource. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care of your health. Keep your practice strong. I'll see you in the next one. Okay? Bye for now. Bye for now.